Turn in your Bibles to Joel chapter 2. And we're going to wrap up this great book this morning. I hope you've enjoyed reading it through. And uh, you know these words written uh, by God through his prophets are powerful uh, for us even today. And this is a, a great little book filled with riches. And so we want to we look at this. Now, if you recall from last week, um, the people of Israel had turned away from the Lord and, and God had brought a plague of locusts uh, to get their attention. And it was a devastating plague and, and God's invitation through it all at the close of last week was to return to me, come back to me because I am a God who is compassionate and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And, and this was a really important moment uh, in Israel's history where God is dealing with his people in a really powerful way as we studied. And, and these moments are often called a day of the Lord. Uh, this is a great term. It's pointing to a big and ultimate day. But there are days along the way that are days of the Lord. This morning I woke up, I was studying early before the sun came up, and there's this windstorm came through our community. I guess it didn't come through the down south, but too far down south, but in our, like, I thought these trees were going to fall over. And I thought, man, I'm studying the day of the Lord like it's upon me. Like, I thought the tree was going to fall on our roof of our house. And like, whoa. But God has these days where he deals profoundly with us as his people. Um, and, and today we're going to study how this destruction of the locusts that we studied last week is really a pointer to the ultimate and final day of the Lord that we will study when God comes and brings judgment upon the nations and salvation for his people. And, and God's aim, we need to understand this, is that God's aim for us and for his people and all this is to draw us into an intimate relationship with him that we might experience his presence, his joy and his love, his compassion and his grace and mercy and his holiness. And so the invitation is to turn back to him when life is hard, that we might know him and experience him and his presence. And the good news is, is that Israel turned. And so we will look this morning at what the three experiences are uh, for those who turn back to the Lord. Okay, let's look at three of them this morning. The first one is uh, the Lord's promise of restoration. Now, it says in verse 12, we looked at this verse last week, uh, that God said to them, return to me with all your heart. He always wants our heart. All of us. That's what he's going after. And it says that they responded. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Listen to what he did. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain and wine and oil. You will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. It, he, it ushers in this great season of abundance because of their repentance. It says in verse 20 that their enemies were, were sent packing away 
And then it says in verse 22 that there was this blessing in their agricultural economy. Look at verse 22. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of wilderness are green again. The tree bears its fruit, and the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord, for he has given you rain for your vindication. He has poured down abundant rain the early and the latter rain as before. Verse 24, now the, the threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. And so it was a time of great prosperity and, and blessing that brought great rejoicing. You heard that over and over again, that the people rejoiced and celebrated that God had been good to them. But perhaps the, the culmination in, the, in the, the verse that most profoundly speaks of this is he says in verse 25, I, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Isn't that unbelievable? All that God took from them to get their attention, to draw them back, he says, I will restore to you in plenty. It's a picture of even more than they had before. It's a complete turnabout and restoration for all that was lost through the raid of the locusts. And it says in verse 18, it was for the jealousy of his name that he wanted to protect his character, that he is a good God and he is a God that when we repent, he restores us. He will do this because this is who he is. When we repent, he restores. His aim is never to destroy his people, but to bring them back into the blessedness of his presence and enjoying the abundance of walking with him. You know, maybe you've been through a dark time like this in our lives where we feel like um, everything is collapsing around us and we wonder maybe and if we'll make it through. You ever been there? I have. But this is important to remember. God's character and who he is, that he is loving and he is merciful and he is gracious. Even in the times, and I felt this way, that, that I think God is against me. We're saying God is for us today, and that's, that's the truth. But we go, is God even, like, is he for me? Is he, it feels like he hates me today, what I'm going through. But to trust his heart and to trust his character and who he is, his name is at stake. God must be true to himself. He is good and he does good, Psalm 119, verse 68 says. And so we trust him in those dark moments, those hard times of life. You know, you know we, we tend to hate in our lives the time of the locusts. And we love these verses. In fact, Jared kept saying, I have the good verses. I, I don't know that I have the good verses. Because God is with us in the hard times and in the good times. And that's the good news. And that's always true. And sometimes we recognize it most when we're in the hard times. He is closest to us. It says in Philippians 3.10 that there's a fellowship when we are going through sufferings. And Psalm 23 says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death... I will fear no evil because you are with me. That's the blessing. He is good. He does good. He is with us. And he's felt sometimes most intensely in the hard time. A song when I was going through a really hard time uh, written by Laura Story said, it might take a thousand sleepless nights to know that you are near. 
sometimes it takes a thousand sleepless nights to know God's presence. But that's the treasure. And his aim is always to bring us back to a place of rejoicing. But sometimes by his sovereign understanding of who we are, he needs to take us through it. And I want to say this, that, that the losses that we experience in disobedience, right, and there's losses that go with disobedience, are not primarily about our consequences. Well, they happen, and we saw it in this, that the locusts come and steal away our, our agricultural prosperity. But our greatest loss by far in our disobedience and our rebellion is the loss of intimacy with God. Our walking away from him, our turning our back on him, that's the greatest loss by far. And as humans, we tend to confuse this. We, we love God's provision even more than we love him. But what we need most and what our heart needs most is his presence. That's when our heart is enlivened. That's when we are blessed. That's when we are satisfied, when he is at the, the center of our, our being and given that rightful place. Mary and I are in this emptiness syndrome. This is not syndrome. <laughs> Although it could be. <laughs> Chapter of life. We like it, actually. And uh, we're blessed to have kids that are walking with the Lord. We're thankful for that. But um, we often get to do a number of things just together, the two of us, go out to dinner, uh, go to concerts, take hikes and walks and ride bikes and these sorts of things. And Mary's tired of this question, but I'll often go as we kind of get to this beautiful place. We might be eating dinner overlooking the mountains or whatever. And I go, you know what's best about this? I'm with you. And I say that, right? I'm with you. This, and it, it, it's the best. That's why it's really, really good. Everything else around is really good. But what's best about it is I'm with you. And even more than that, right, is that we get to do everything we do in life with God. With us and who he is and his goodness and his love, his faithfulness to us, we walk with him. And so they experienced the Lord's promise of restoration. Well, secondly, I want to look at, and this, these are big verses. Let's look at the Lord's promise of his spirit. These are really important verses in the Old Testament. Verse 28. It says, and it came to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And so here is another day of the Lord. Where God is dealing profoundly with his people. And he says the spirit will come, and it really is. All of these pictures of God's presence, they grow through this chapter. But this is analogous to the pouring out of rain and the refreshing of the land. And now he's going to come and refresh the hearts of his people by sending his spirit to come and live inside of us. And Ezekiel famously wrote of this in chapter 36, 26, and 27. He said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And that's just a great, great text from Ezekiel. So the coming of the Spirit of God, again, is a richer experience of his character and who he is. 
to walk more intimately with him. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon leaders and upon prophets and, and enable them to do his work in their, their lives. And there would be moments where he would profoundly reveal himself in, in history. But now he says, I'm going to come. The Spirit of God is going to come and live within every one of us who believe. God inside of us. God's presence inside of us. All that he is in his character living inside of us. Whoa. That's a big day. <laughs> yeah. Think about it. Everyone, right? Galatians 3.8 says, all of us, male, female, young and old, economically prosperous, those who are struggling, educated, those who are less educated, all are one in Christ. For we were all baptized into one body by the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Every bit of God and who he is and his character is inside of each one of you that believe in Jesus. That is an amazing and unbelievable and overflowing and infinite resource to do all that he's called you to do. And indeed, this is what it says happens. He says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, male and female servants, people of all varieties of occupations will have the Spirit poured out on them. But we see that they now will do things for God. His supernatural activity will be abundant in their life. God wants to do supernatural things through you by His Spirit. His Spirit lives in you. Think about it. Don't limit Him. He gets to do God-sized stuff in your life, and He wants to do it. And He says, His Spirit's inside of you, and He will do it if you'll surrender to Him. It's a powerful picture. Jesus said it, you'll be like a river, a river person of the Spirit flowing through you to other people. You will, you will experience him using you to love and serve and bless and make a difference in the lives of others. Have you ever had this happen? Like I, I sometimes I get done with a day and I, I look back and I go, wow, you actually loved that person today. That's really unusual for you, Kevin. Like that's not who you are. You know? Like, wow, that was God in me. Right? You have that experience? It's like this power. You know that's not you. I, I met with a, a good friend this past week, and, and I, I don't know that he's ever been in a church service in his whole life. That's not an exaggeration. And, but he had just gone, the day before, he had had like his family just collapsing all around him in all kinds of crazy ways. And we had breakfast scheduled the next morning. And so we're good friends, and we talk about, he knows I'm a pastor, so he's used to my pastoral talk, but... He's not really interested, but I said, hey, did you think about this? Think about this. You went through all of that yesterday, right? And kind of at your wit's end, and you had an appointment with Pastor Kevin today. And the light bulbs came flashing on. He goes, I got to go home and tell my wife about this. That was his response. Like, there, there might be a God out there. Like, I'm seeing it. This is God wants to use us in remarkable ways. Be available to him. Now, Peter grabbed this section out of Joel in Acts chapter 2, verses 17 to 21. And Peter uses this to say God was drawing our attention to something. 
that the Spirit would come upon humanity to draw attention to this person named Jesus. That there was a God-man that came and lived among us. A God in human flesh who came and died and rose again. And at the end of this little section, it says, All who called upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this coming of the Spirit was to usher in this time when those who would believe would believe in Jesus and turn to him and trust in him. And it is ushered in. And in fact, this is the sign that we really know Jesus. That the Spirit of God lives inside of us. It's Romans 8, 9. And the Bible tells us that the Spirit's primary aim is to point us to Jesus and all that we have in him. John 16, 14 to 15. He will glorify me when he comes, Jesus says. And so this is what the Spirit of God does. When you hear Sunday by Sunday your heart being drawn to Christ, that's the Spirit of God speaking to you. Respond to him. You need a Savior. I need a Savior. Here he is, the Spirit says. If you want to know God, if you want to walk with God, turn to Jesus. In him is found forgiveness. In him is found acceptance. In him is new life. In him you have favor with God, and God rejoices over you. And the Spirit's constantly reminding you of all you have in Jesus Christ. And that's a good thing, because the world is telling us all kinds of things that are just not true. And there is a power and a freedom that is found in the Spirit as we listen to him as he points us to Christ as the only one that can satisfy our hearts. He's the only one. We are just looking. This, this text is filled with this word satisfaction. We're just looking for things to satisfy us. We, Mary and I were up at a concert with some friends this past week and uh, happened to be the music of Queen. And uh, you can laugh. And uh, anyway, it was, a US, it was the Utah Symphony playing this music. But one of their songs was, I want it all. And I want it now. <laughs> and they're singing this, you know. And, you know, if you had it all and you had it now, you wouldn't be satisfied. You wouldn't, right? It doesn't satisfy. You need Jesus. Jesus will satisfy your hearts. And only him. And so we come to this little section. And it wraps up by saying that the Spirit marks the beginning of the last days. He says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now last week Pastor Jared talked about how Prophets often talk in 2D. You've got a, a message and a page. And, and, and here we find, first of all, that the Spirit comes, which happens in uh, first century A.D. And now suddenly we have in the next verse this blood and fire and the moon turning color and all that call upon the name of the Lord. This is like if you could step back, like Pastor Jared explained last week, and looked at the mountain range from within them, this is a great distance. We're now suddenly going to the day of the Lord years and years and years later. And what the prophet is saying, my, my professor in seminary said to me, when they put down wonders and blood and fire and red moon, that means something really big is happening. <laughs> 
there's something big coming at us now. And it's the day of the Lord. That after the Spirit comes, he ushers in the last days, which is the beginning of the march to the end. And that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Take shelter in Jesus, because this is going to be a day. And that's what we're going to look at next. Part 3. Chapter 3 of our text. That the Lord, for those who turn to him, the Lord promises eternity with him. Okay, let's look at this. Chapter 3. For behold, in those days, and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, God's people's fortunes are restored, ultimately and finally now, this is what we're marching toward, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. On behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. So God is looking at the sin and the brokenness of the world and he says, I'm going to come and deal with it and make it right. It's a day of reckoning once and for all, for all people. A decisive day, judgment for sinners and salvation for those who are God's people. And it's spoken of as a great value, of great uh, battle. In verse 12, look at it. It says, let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge and all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is Great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And God says, I will come and I will judge and I will oppose all those people who have mistreated my people. There will be judgment, there will be blood, there will be death. It will be a horrifying day, like a sickle coming and dealing with a harvest will be those that will be judged. If you move ahead to Revelation chapter 19, you see sort of the further explanation of what this battle looks like. And it says Jesus comes and he's on a horse, right? And it says from verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. This is a day of great, great wrath. Okay, let's let's, let's sit on us a little, right? Let's face this text a little bit. You know, in our world today, we're really, really good with a God of love, right? The sword just accepts us all, finds us all okay, right? Just overlooks our offenses, and just kind of loves everybody, right? And he does love everybody. But he is also a God of wrath. And we see it in this text. And, and our culture struggles with this so much. But think about it with me. A God of love must have wrath against sin. He must or he's not a loving God at all. Did you hear verse 4? 
These people sold the children into slavery so that they could pay their prostitutes. Children being abused so that they could indulge themselves in drunkenness and partying. Does that make you angry? If you love those kids, you are in wrath against those kind of activities against them. If you don't care, that's not love, that's apathy. A God of love is also and must be a God of wrath. Or he doesn't love people. But he's also patient, right, with every one of us, thankfully, right? He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so he is patient in coming to this day and has delayed so far. But this scene that we're seeing in Joel, and now we read about it in Revelation 19, is really this final scene of the day of the Lord where his, he comes and makes war against the nations to deal with the sin of the people. Now, I want you to think with me for a second, okay? I don't have the time to read Revelation 19 because this is the, this is the battle. But there's three players in Revelation 19, okay, that come to in the subject. One is the prostitute, one is the lamb, and one is the bride. Those are the three characters that show up in Revelation 19. A prostitute, a bride, and a lamb. And, and this, this, this metaphorical language that God is using is trying to speak to us of his amazing love to us to draw us into himself. It's very romantic and loving language. It may not sound like it, but let me explain it to you. That this creation that God has made has gone their own way and has become, in God's words, adulterous. Hence the prostitute. All that opposes God, sin is adulterous. It's taking something and putting it in the place of God. It's loving something ahead of God. It's loving the world instead of him. And God says it is adultery. It's prostituting ourselves. This is why God has wrath against sin, because it's adulterous. Now look, I've sat in lots of appointments over the years as a pastor tragically of couples who have gone through adultery. And, and it's a heartbreaking situation. It really is. You know this. Some of you have been through it. But in every case, as they tell their story, there's a couple of things. One is, is there is wrath. And it's justified, and we all know it. There's wrath on those that have been cheated on. But secondly... There is this sense of somebody needs to pay a price, right? I either absorb it as the person who's been mistreated and absorb that, or I lash out in some way. There's a price that needs to be paid. And this is why the second person in this story is called a lamb. We know who the lamb is. It's Jesus Christ. He paid the price to set us free, to buy us out of prostitution, to give our hearts back to him, to lay down our lives as the noble husband, to invite us back to a relationship with him in love, willing to die to make us right and get us free from the sins that have held us. This is the lamb, wooing us, fighting for us, demonstrating his life, paying the price for our infidelity. 
I'll let this sink in. It's a beautiful thing. See, God relates to us in the scripture as a king, ruler, authority, right? He relates to us in scripture as a shepherd where he comforts us and he guides us and he protects us. But in the end, in the end, family, he relates to us as a lover. Isn't that something? Like we're his bride. That's what he does for us. That's what he desires for us. He wants our heart. That's why God says, return to me with all your heart. Don't straighten out your garments. Don't clean up your life and make you be more religious and do all the good things. Come to me and give me your heart. He loves you. He's a lover. He's a bridegroom. He wants your heart. That's what he wants. Have you fallen into his arms as a lover? D.L. Moody spoke of this time just after a Chicago fire and his congregation had been, and his church had been decimated in homes that his congregation lived in. And he went to New York City to raise money and to try to help to his people and he was so depressed and so discouraged and almost ready to give up on the faith and then he said he writes this he goes and then I had this experience of God's love that so profoundly changed me that I will never ever be the same again that's what he needed that's what we need to know his love and band you can come on up and know his love. And, and this is where this text is taking us, right? I mean, we we kind of had to walk through this valley of Jehoshaphat, right? To come out the other side. And see, for those who turn back to him, we are a bride that he loves. Jesus said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. That's a picture of a, of a husband-to-be, going away and preparing this place, this palace, with all the resources in the world for his bride. And the end of this text this morning speaks of what this will look like. It says in verse 17, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. This place that Jesus is preparing will be perfect and safe and no sin or heartache or brokenness will ever get in. In verse 18 it says, And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the streambeds of, stream of Judah shall flow with water. It will be a place of great abundance. The Bible calls it a new heaven and a new earth, which is a perfect earth without any sin or pain or heartache, or sorrow, or death. Can you imagine this earth, as great as it is? This is a great city. But can you imagine having this city without any sin? Oh my gosh. This is what he's describing here. And he pictures this flow of water from, from the house of the Lord in verse 18 that waters the valley. And Jonathan Edwards said, that is a picture of the love that was flowing through the Trinity from all, all eternity between each other, loving and glorifying each other, now is flowing out of his throne and all his people swim in it. I mean, his love, his perfect 
love to us. Well, then we love one another, not for its for our sake to feel good about ourselves, but just because we have it inside of us and we're swimming in it to just be a blessing to each other. This is the picture. This is what Jesus is preparing for us. And it says in verse 20, and Judah shall be inhabited forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. We are Jesus' bride forever. And in the very last phrase, this is what it's all about. This is why it's so good. It says, the Lord dwells in Zion with us. It's his presence. It's his goodness. This is what our hearts were made for. We've been invited, every one of us, through this text to be part of this great day. What the Bible calls the Supper of the Lamb, right? Well, you got your RSVP this morning, <laughs> right? There it is. Come to Jesus, give your life. All the call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you accepted the invite? <laughs> Have you received him? Have you said, Jesus, thank you for dying for me? Thank you for taking the sins of my adulterous behavior and winning me back as a perfect husband. Have you wandered away from him? Do you need to come back today? That's the message of Joel. Into his goodness and anticipation of this day. Let's take a moment in prayer. This is one of the harder hitting texts in all the Bible these last couple weeks. And so I think we would be remiss if we didn't at least offer you You've heard the RSVP, or the question, the invitation. Do you need to say yes to Jesus today? Do you need to say, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I can see that my sin was deeply offensive. Thank you that you took the price, paid the price. And if this morning you want to say, I just I want to give my life to Jesus. Thank you for dying for me, Jesus. If that's your heart today, I just want you to raise your hand this morning. Anybody here that wants to go, I just give my life to you. I surrender my life to you. Is there anybody else in this room this morning who has been wandering away? You follow Jesus, but you've wandered away, and, and God is speaking to you about coming back. I want to turn back around. I want to get back with him. I've walked away from his presence. I want to be dwelling in his love and his grace and his mercy again today. Anybody in that place this morning, you'd say, I just want to turn back. I want to come back to him. Anybody this morning? Father, we're thankful for all you're doing with us. We're thankful for the hope of eternity. We're thankful that you loved us so much that you died for us. And we give our lives to you this day. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.